You're listening to Hope Gateway Conversations, discussions and presentations of interest to the Hope Gateway community. Inspired by the words of Micah 6.8, our mission is to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Reverend Jane Field is the Executive Director of the Maine Council of Churches. Jane, thanks for some time to have a conversation this afternoon. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about the Maine Council of Churches, but first, what's your journey and how did you arrive there? Well, I tell everyone that will listen, it's my dream job because it brings together two streams in my life that for many, many years were pretty much separate. In college, I was an economics and public policy major. And then I went off to Princeton University for a master's degree in public policy and uh, then wound up at seminary. Uh, I kind of took a hard turn and went to Union Seminary in New York City without the intention of being ordained. Of course, I did get ordained, went into parish ministry and was there for 25 years. And while I combined that work and infused that work with a commitment to working for social justice, the public policy piece really took a back burner. And the Maine Council of Churches has for many, many years before I ever wandered in the door, been a place where faith and advocacy come together. And when I looked at their portfolio, when I looked at their mission statement, I thought, Uh, There's no place else I'd rather be. And my family roots go back in Maine to 1650. So, but I'm from away. (laughs) Mainers will tell you I'm from away because I physically wasn't born within the state limit. So I'm not legit, but the rest of my family is. So having it be here at home in Maine and having it bring together those two parts of myself and the training that I'd received just was almost too good to be true. Interestingly, our paths have crossed in a couple of ways. We were in ministry in adjacent communities for quite a number of years. And then now being here in Maine and one of your neighbors is a, is a good friend of mine from the New York conference days, so. That's right, John Cole, my, uh, the new family on our peninsula at the lake, they, they moved there in 1973, of course, but we all call them the new family. And John's a great guy, his wife, Dr. Polly Wheat, um, they're dear friends of our family. So yeah, you and I have all kinds of common ground. Um, and how wonderful that is. Jane, you talked about the mission of the Maine Council of Churches. I looked up on the website earlier today and correct me if I've got this slightly out of order, rooted in Hebrew and Christian scriptures, our mission is to inspire congregations and persons of faith to unite in good works and build a culture of justice, compassion, and peace. You got it. You got it perfectly right. Yep, that is our mission. It it has been a part of our bylaws and our mission statement, again, for many years before I came. I came in 2015, so I've, I've only been here six years. Each part of that is a really important part of the identity of the council. And in recent years, we've had a revision of the bylaws. We've had some change in our membership and did some really deep work about our identity. And that rooted in Hebrew and Christian scriptures has become very central The commitment to social justice was always front and center. Although interestingly, until until we revised the bylaws, it was not a lens that we used in determining membership the way we do now. 
And it's much more overt in our bylaws that when we look to receive a new member denomination or an associate member, we look for demonstrated, the word demonstrated commitment to working for social justice and the dignity and equality of all humanity and protection of, of the natural world as well. So it's much more intentional and overt now than maybe it was in the past. You talk about the rich history of the Maine Council of Churches going back to 1869 and the Maine Sunday School Association. That had a significant outreach across the breadth of what was then a pretty rural state. Mm. Yeah, some people were living in very remote areas and didn't have access to a church or a minister or a Sunday school. And it made a big difference in people's lives. Churches were sharing curriculum, and then it morphed during the 30s into Sunday School of the Air, wow. which was a radio program that, again, could reach across. You know, Maine is a huge, vast state and sparsely populated, and it could reach across those distances, the radio could. And in fact, without anyone knowing it, that part of our history ended up benefiting the organization in an extraordinary way when a woman who had never been to church as a child or an adult, uh, Mrs. Libby from Wells, Maine, in her will said, I don't have children. I don't have immediate relatives. I want my entire estate to go to the Maine Council of Churches because I listened to the Sunday School of the Air. Even in that Maine Sunday School Association, it was uh, innovative. I think in 1924, embraced the new medium of radio to reach <laughs> children and adults in the farthest regions of Maine. Maine Council of Churches sounds like it continues to be innovative in terms of, of supporting, as you say, the common good. And, and reaching across those distances. I mean, in some ways, Maine is two states. We have Southern Maine that's densely populated, easy to navigate places are close together, but you get up above Augusta and suddenly it's hours in the car and people are very far apart. And as much as the pandemic has been a horrific curse and one I wouldn't have ever wished upon ourselves, it has also advanced the council's ability and I think lots of churches ability to reach across distances like that and offering online ways to connect. You know, we've we've shifted from in-person events that we used to hold where people would have to drive sometimes for hours to get there or not come at all to mm -hmm. all they have to do is click a button on their computer and they're in the room with us. And, and we've done our faith-based advocacy days that way now. And we've done author talks and we brought funeral directors together and Dr. Shaw together with clergy from all over the state. We never could have done that before. So hopefully we're living up to that radio heritage from 1924 and the 30s and looking for ways that technology can help us unite, right? That's one of those key words in that mission statement is uniting people. It, it's a core of who we are and what we try to do. And technology is the cutting edge of that for us right now. I want to wander a little bit here through a simple phrase and yet one that's immensely rich and, and has many layers. The three videos that are on the website all have the phrase common good. Mm. What is the common good? <laughs> Probably depends on who you ask, but for us, the common good is a world where the dignity of every person is 
respected and honored and, re and protected, where there's equity and an equal distribution of resources and access to things like healthcare and food and clean water and shelter, working for those things. And, and you know, we're, we're primarily a state focused organization. While it is absolutely essential that others focus on the international scene, for example, in terms of development work or even our national scene, it's pretty rare that we weigh in or get involved in even the federal level. We stay right here in Maine and we look at how we can create those things I just described for the people of Maine. And in recent years, that a nuance that has kind of been lifted up to the forefront is racial equity, and in particular, honoring those whose land this is that has been unseated, and yet here we are on it, the Wabanaki Confederacy, making sure that we are good neighbors after centuries, many centuries of being what uh, Shirley Hager, the Quaker author who wrote The Gatherings, she's a main author here, calls uh, being the house guest from hell, which is what uh, the European settlers and colonists were for the Wabanaki. And we're seeking ways to do better. So yeah, what is the common good? You won't always have agreement. Even within our member denominations, we may not find agreement. In fact, about three years ago, we lost one of our member denominations because for the other seven of us, the common good included protecting the rights and dignity of LGBTQ people in our community, and it included standing up for reproductive justice and access to abortion services. And our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters said they could not be a part of an organization that advocated for those things, and, and so they left. It was with deep sadness that we saw them go, but that's an example of where two different bodies understood what the common good was very differently. I want to backtrack for just a second when you talked about the fact that the main council of churches is what its first word and its title is, Maine. Yet back in the history, there was a, a outreach to boys and girls for writing essays uh, that related to peace and was an opportunity for some of them to make their way to Lake Success, New York, to see the early origins of the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And what jumped off the website for me was Cliff Ives was one of the early folks, 1954 or 1955, in a trip to the United Nations. And there was a, yes. an image of his handwritten essay and, and the award that he received. Of course, Cliff Ives is a uh, retired bishop in the United Methodist Church, and Cliff Ives was uh, very active in uh, Hope Gateway up until just very recently. So That's right. He and his wife, Jane, and, and they're uh, very faithful supporters of the Maine Council of Churches. And in fact, a couple of years ago, we had them write a column for us about that connection that they feel to us. And in our archives is that original handwritten letter, and Cliff talked about it. And I think they met through one of the gatherings statewide that was related to that essay writing. That's how he and Jane met as teenagers. So, you know, we, we should maybe add matchmaking to our portfolio of activities that we do as a council. But Cliff and Jane have been very dear friends to the organization for many, many years. And 
Yeah, we have that letter. Actually, the Maine Historical Society houses the archives of our history as an organization. And so that letter is somewhere in the storage facility that I know quite well where our stuff is kept um, by the Maine Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Well, he certainly has been a voice for equal opportunity and, and fairness of rights and, and taking a stand for for all of the ministry that I'm aware of and acquainted with in, in his lifetime and, and have known personally as he has come to in Iowa when I was there to help us find a way to be as inclusive and all-embracing as we could be and as we should be. He is. He's such a, a good guy. Such a good guy. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about legislative advocacy, if we can. Mm-hmm. Legislative advocacy made a difference in May of 1965 when the legislature passed an anti-discrimination and rental housing bill mm-hmm. after the advocacy of the main council of churches to ensure equal access for all people to all employment, housing, education and recreation. Whether it's fair housing, whether it's inclusivity and all opportunities, whether it's the Wabanaki dispossession and and then to to recognize our our role in that one way or the other. The main council of churches has a voice that is literally widely broadcast. At least in a perfect world it is. We try very hard. Um, It's continually a challenge, I was going to say frustration, but I don't want to sound too negative, that the more conservative voices that identify themselves as voices of faith in our state tend to be the loudest and the ones that folks, particularly folks who maybe aren't affiliated with the church of any kind, assume stands for all of us. And we're standing here saying that's not so. And we stand for 437 congregations that have 55,000 members around our state, and we have a very different position on what our faith calls us to say and do in terms of many things like banning conversion therapy on LGBTQ minors or expanding access to abortion services for women in rural Maine or standing up to prohibit discrimination against trans youth in our public schools here in the state as well as a host of issues related to immigration and poverty and healthcare, we were very active in getting Medicaid expansion brought here to Maine. We were very active in getting the religious exemption removed for school vaccinations. Another thing that, you know, often in those testimony rooms or now because of COVID on Zoom, we are there alongside other people of faith saying the diametrically opposed thing to what we're saying. And over and over, we have legislators and people from the public say, we're so glad to hear that other voice of faith speaking up in the public square. We had a huge event in Augusta a couple of years ago around um, harm reduction and opioid use disorder and safe injection sites. It is not what people assume. Unfortunately, I think because of caricatures in a lot of the media today, it is not what people assume the voice of faith is going to say. And yet... We know from our member denominations, it is what many, many, many people of faith feel strongly about, feel convicted to stand up and speak about. And we're so proud to be able to do that. Because it's not necessarily the loudest voice in the room, is it 
sometimes a surprise to people who can affect public policy to hear the progressive voice of the main council of churches? Yes, it often is. And over and over, I'll be in situations where someone will tug on my sleeve or pull me out in the hallway at a statehouse meeting and say, I had no idea that any churches felt that way. I had no idea that that whenever someone starts a sentence with me about I had no idea, I know what's coming is that we are recrafting for them their image of what being a person of faith means. And that feels evangelism is something I tend to shy away from because I don't believe in proselytizing. You know, the are you saved and knocking on people's doors? That's so not my thing. And it's not what the main council of churches is about either. But in those moments, it feels like a kind of evangelism that feels right and authentic to me. That by bearing witness to what we as our seven member denominations have found to be true in those Hebrew and Christian scriptures, as well as our faith traditions and opening people's eyes and hearts. I was in a meeting, oh, maybe a month ago, where we were, it was a Zoom meeting, so we were put into breakout rooms in pairs, and I was paired with a young woman from here in Portland who I'd never met, and her camera wasn't working, so I still don't know what she looks like, but um, she'd been raised out West in a very conservative community. She was a trans woman and was rejected by her family, by her town, had to move away, and had walked away from the church. And I don't blame her. (laughs) The church that did that to her, she needed to walk away from. But she, we were supposed to, I don't remember what we were supposed to be talking about, but we went off script. And by the end of our time together, she said, you've, you've really changed my mind. I need to realize that not everyone who's a person of faith feels the way that those people that did that to me feel. So um, those are pretty profound moments. And legislators have let us know, you know, the vaccination issue, we wrote a letter quietly at the request of a senator, state senator, in the very last moments when there was a second vote and there was one vote hanging in the balance and we changed his mind. We changed his mind because he suddenly heard from a group that represented these 55,000 church members across the state all saying there's no religious reason someone should be exempted from a vaccination and it held. And that was again, a moment where we felt like we really made a difference and we were acting from our, our deepest held convictions and values. Sure. I'd like to talk about amplification for a minute. So there is the official public recognition, I guess, of you as the executive director of the main council of churches. But then you talk about the other 55,000 voices that could be raised. How does the main council of churches go about amplifying? How can faith communities help amplify the coordinated, cohesive message, uh, the interfaith message of the main council of churches? There are a couple of ways, and it's sort of at two different, coming at it from two different angles. The first angle is that a couple of our member denominations have very important active advocacy arms already present and at work here in the state. And we rely on them and they rely on us. Musan is one of those, the main Unitarian Universalist State Advocacy Network. Uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Maine and the Episcopal Public Policy Network is another. The Friends Committee on uh, Maine Public Policy is another. 
so those denominations that have a body like that at work are critical to our work. And so they're made up of member, those 55,000 members, some of them are part of each of those groups and have representatives on our public policy committee or on our board, and so have direct input and direct action. But the other way we do it is a very grassroots way. We have something called our faith advocacy training, faith-based advocacy training, and actually a member of Hope Gateway, Evelyn Johnson Moore, who co-chairs our public policy committee at the moment, also chaired that event this year. And it is a way to equip and empower both clergy, but especially laity, to learn to speak with a voice of faith about issues they care deeply about, whether that's creation care or health care or education or hunger. We bring in analysts and experts in a bunch of those different fields each year. It's a slightly different constellation. It's an every other year event, I should say, to be in small groups with people who are passionate about those issues, telling them what are the legislative issues, what are the social issues, who's doing on the ground direct service work, how can they connect with them, and then theologians in the room saying, here's a framework to think about this theologically from your position as a person of faith. Here's scripture, here's doctrine, here's Christian ethics that can help guide you as you think about your role and your call to respond to these critical social issues. In the off years when we're not doing that, we try to offer a rich diversity of programming that's not necessarily related to public policy. So we had an author talk with Susan Inches who wrote Advocating for the Environment who talked about storytelling. We're gonna do another with Shirley Hager who I mentioned. In January, we're partnering with the BTS Center and inviting people of faith from around the state to read one of Martin Luther King's sermons aloud online at noon on Martin Luther King Day. We've had George Mitchell come and speak. We're right now planning a similar kind of, I think it'll be webinar, probably won't be in person given Omicron, talking about the intersection of white folks demanding civility and civil discourse with white privilege and the desire to preserve a status quo. And how it sounds like such a good thing to say, we should be civil. You know, I'm not going to talk to you unless we're going to be civil. Mm -hmm. And yet too often that just is a mask for protecting the status quo. I had a friend of color say to me once, you know, it's like if I was standing in your kitchen and I put my hand down on a hot burner and couldn't get it off and I was yelling at you to help me. And you said, I'm not going to talk to you about what's happening to your hand until you can do that civilly. That, that's the problem. <laughs> and that was eye-opening for me. And so I'm actually meeting next week with a person that we think will be inviting to be our keynote. And then we'll have a panel responding to that. And so that's lots of different ways of trying to meet the needs of the people in the pews, as we call them. Although a lot of churches, including Hope Gateway, doesn't have pews anymore. And I'm glad for that, that uh, we can help them think theologically, act theologically, talk to other people beyond their own congregation or their own denomination. And that cross-pollination is so exciting to watch happen and, and results in extraordinary work and partnerships and growth. So it's thrilling to be at the center of it. Sure. Extraordinary is, is a wonderfully appropriate word, Jane, because as you mentioned, Dr. Martin Luther King, I back in your history, the third video, I should say, of the 
on the website of the history of the Maine Council of Churches. In the mid 80s, there was a cooperative effort to thwart the attempt by the Ku Klux Klan to regain a foothold. So, yes. Um, yep. We are standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, make no mistake about it. That was Tom Ewell, one of my predecessors, and Jill Saxby after him. I was just in a meeting today with Four Directions Development Corporation, which is the only native development corporation here in the state that does things like mortgages and financial education and entrepreneurial training on Wabanaki, for Wabanaki people on Wabanaki land. Mm -hmm. And uh, Tom Ewell, way back 15 years ago, did a, a program to help churches loan money to this development corporation. Mm. And now 15 years later, the loans are maturing and we have started getting churches to forgive those loans. And as of today, this is hot off the presses, $114,000 of loans have been forgiven by churches around the state of Maine that now will go into the asset capacity of that development corporation, enabling them to promote home ownership, which has always been challenging, especially without tribal sovereignty and small business development and financial literacy education amongst the people of the Donland. And what a, you know, boy, does that humbling for me to mm. inherit that legacy from Tom's work and from the board of directors that was active at that time and to build on that legacy. It's just absolutely incredible. We'd like to give you an opportunity to, and we're not done quite yet, but you listed a number of things in the on year where there is the major event and then the off year, so to speak. Although I wouldn't say anything's an off year. I would just say year one and year two of a two-year yeah. sequence of a different kind of, of offering. I'm in the learning curve here about the main council of churches, and I imagine I'm not the only one in the learning curve. So this is an opportunity for you to plug how I or someone like me might find out about all of this rich opportunity and uh, developing more of an awareness and uh, an encouragement to be vocal advocate, to be an evangelist in the, in the positive sense of being one who says, here's the story and you need to hear this story because it's life-changing story. And it's right. an opportunity for you to discover your place in the story. How do I go about finding any of that? So good question. Um, back to that cutting edge we were talking about a little while ago, a growing edge of technology. People can find us on the web, as you did. You've clearly mined our website. You know it better than I do, I think. Oh. Uh, we also have a Facebook page. And as of very recently, we have an Instagram presence. We got a grant from the First Parish UCC in Brunswick this fall that is enabling us to expand our technology capacity. So those are all places where you can get up to the minute info. And either from the Facebook page or the website, there's a place where you can subscribe oh. to our digital e-news, which comes out a couple times a month at least, sometimes more often when things are popping. And if you provide us with a snail mail address, then you also receive a print edition. We do two print newsletters a year. One just came out last week. Those are all the back issues of those are available, archived on our website. And when a new edition comes out, there's always a link on the Facebook page to read it digitally if you didn't happen to get a print copy. So I encourage people to do that. It's got lots of information about the kinds of things we're working on. And then either through Facebook or the website, 
there will be periodic notices of, you know, coming up next, an author talk with Susan Inches or time to sign up for uh, faith-based advocacy days. That will not be 2022 PS. So for folks that want that opportunity, they should be looking ahead to the midwinter of 2023, which sounds like it's a long ways away, but it's not. Probably the next big program they should be keeping their eyes out for is either the next author talk or not even either or, and the symposium on white privilege and calls for civility. The name of that, and I'll never, I named it myself and I could just kick myself because it's way too long a title. I can't ever remember it, but saying peace, peace when there is no peace, how calling for civil discourse can protect white privilege, something like that. <laughs> so keep an eye out for the announcement. Uh, generally speaking, we don't tend to charge much of anything for our events. A lot of them are free. I think advocacy days, we charge a nominal fee, particularly when it's in person because we feed people and we pay our speakers an honorarium, of course. So, but we always have scholarships. Costs should never be a reason somebody feels they can't participate in one of our events. If somebody's interested in getting even more involved than just attending something, we have standing committees of our board and you don't need to be a member of the board of directors to serve on a committee. So the aforementioned public policy committee that Evelyn Johnson Moore from Hope Gateway co-chairs right now, you can, we have an application process that people who are interested can join, can submit an application and hopefully join the, the committee and that expands our reach and our capacity. And that is something we're always bumping up against our sense of call from God with our capacity. Um, up until August, I was only 20 hours a week with the council and actually had to take on a parish ministry job for the other quote unquote half of my uh, gainful employment. I hung on for five years, but through the grace of God and some very good luck, the board saw fit to expand my position starting this past August to full-time. Mm -hmm. But even so, I'm the only staff person that's full-time. We have four to six hours a week of an office administrator who's extraordinary, and she gets done in those hours something that I don't, I don't know how she does it, and a bookkeeper who comes in twice a month. That's it. So we have to rely on those people you're talking about to come and expand our capacity. Our board of directors is a working board. And in addition to the seven standing representatives of the board, one for each member denomination, those are appointed, not elected. And they are also our membership assembly. There are seven at-large seats on our board. Anyone can be nominated to those who are part of a spiritual community of practice that's rooted in Hebrew and Christian scripture and has demonstrated that commitment to working for social justice. We also have for local congregations like Hope Gateway, wink, wink, um, we'll talk about that in a second, sure. the option, if they're not part of one of our member denominations, of becoming an associate member of the Council of Churches. And that's another way that those people in the pews or the chairs can feel a deep connection, a sense of relationship and shared vision. And part of our, our expanded capacity is through connecting with us that way. So those associate membership positions are not denominationally connected. That's right. And we were thrilled to get a letter from the Hope Gateway leadership just a few weeks ago saying that they want to become an associate member. And I'm happy to report that the executive committee will be recommending to our board of directors on Thursday this week. So this is another hot item 
that they be received as an associate member that will go before the member denominations at their annual meeting in January for approval. And it's so exciting. And, and so Hope Gateway now will have a seat at the table at that membership assembly, which our treasurer describes as our shareholder meeting. So they have voice and vote right alongside our member denominations. Our at-large board members do not have voice or vote as mem- in the membership assembly, but you will as Hope Gateway. So it comes with a chance to shape things like budget and officers and vision and mission. And it's scintillating things like the bylaws, which by the way, should never be underestimated. (laughs) There's something really important about that document because it says who you are and why you do what you do. I'm so excited. Um, You know, I'm a Presbyterian, so I have to say decently and in order. And if the way be clear, the membership assembly, hopefully in January, will be welcoming Hope Gateway on. We have one other associate member congregation at the time um, currently, and that's the Union Church of Biddeford Pool. But it is a way that other congregations around the state could consider getting more directly involved in our work. Breaking news. Yeah. I want to backtrack just on a very personal note for a minute. And that is when you're talking about civil discourse and, and how that can be a guideline for politeness. And I don't mean politeness in the sense of patronizing, but just like being nice. But on the other hand, it can be an oppressive directive. Recently read a book called The Best of Enemies, which was a movie some number of years ago. And it was about school desegregation in Durham, North Carolina. And the amazing part of that story was that there was convergence of a gentleman who had been the Grand Dragon, the Cyclops of the Durham Ku Klux Klan chapter, and African-American woman who was uh, as as vocal and perhaps in some cases strident a voice for saying the way we are are living is unacceptable and this must change. Mm. And there was an interesting middle layer between those two polar positions of of folks who were uh, of color and folks who were not, who were in economic power positions. And and for that sort of uh, multiracial core in the middle there, was saying, let's just, you know, kind of be nice and we'll have opportunities and and you'll get some chances and just, you know, kind of like the the heavy blanket that just says, you know, okay, nice, nice, interesting and uh, reality that nice, nice doesn't always work. And if there's a lot of force behind the nice, nice, it's more like shush, shush. And, yes, um, well said. That's exactly right. Um, Um, I'm thinking of um, MLK's letter from a Birmingham jail and his words to relatively speaking supportive white clergy saying, when you say just be quiet and be polite and stop causing so much trouble and in time, this will all work out. That is really almost worse than, you know, saying you believe in segregation. So that it's not always helpful. And yet what we at the council are really hoping this symposium can do is begin to shape a framework for lifting up values that shouldn't be thrown out with the bathwater. Things like deep respect, careful listening, honoring the dignity and humanity of, of each person in the in the room or in the dialogue those are good things that shouldn't be lost. And I think we're probably 
at the root of the civil discourse program that the Maine Council of Churches ran for quite a number of years. Uh, it was it originally started trying to keep political campaigns from turning vitriolic and being ugly. And it seems almost quaint after the last six years or so that we've been through, because what they were so worried about seems tame compared to how bad things have gotten in our political world. Um, but we dialed it back. We actually, the board went through 18 months of pretty deep self-reflection, evaluating our programs and doing work on privilege and systemic racism. And out of that came the belief, you know, we need to dial back that program and we need to dial up a program that looks at the other side of when it is not helpful to call for that kind of, as you say, nice, nice and polite, you know, polite society conversation. So that's what is the genesis for what's coming next for us. Well, look forward to learning more about that. So Jane, as we wrap, what have we not talked about that is near and dear to your heart and on the front burner of either your concerns or the concerns for the main council of churches? You know, one of the concerns we always face as a tiny little scrappy nonprofit with a very, very little budget is capacity and that issue. Um, it, it was said during the sermon at Hope Gateway on December 5th. I believe the preacher's name was Patsy. Does that sound right? Patsy um, Davis, correct. He talked about where call meets capacity, and that has stayed with me ever since I heard her say that. It's so profound. And it's something we struggle with. So to the extent that folks can or feel called to support us, either with their time, their passion, their treasure, it is always appreciated, deeply appreciated and put to good work. And then I think the other thing I'd like to say is that amongst the folks at Hope Gateway, there are so many that I consider already deeply connected to our work and for whom I'm so grateful. And I don't want to leave our time together without saying thank you to those folks, folks who have come to our programs, folks who have gone through faith-based advocacy training, Evelyn, who co-chairs our biggest standing committee with the heaviest lift. I mean, that committee is a workhorse. And Evelyn steers it, along with John Hennessy from the Episcopal Diocese, with such grace and such wisdom. I don't know what we'd do without her. And Sarah, your pastor, doesn't matter what we text or call or ask her to do, she's always right there. And Ophelia Hukini, another Hope Gateway person, has offered testimony when we've asked her to. She's at last minute, I've called her more than once, I'm embarrassed to say, and said, you know, Department of Justice is having a webinar next week and we really need you to speak. Can you speak? And she says, yes. Your people say yes, and they are extraordinary. You're, you're just an incredible congregation. I'm so thrilled that you'll find this new way of being connected to us because we, uh, we really think the world of you guys. Well, thank you for that, Jane, and thank you for the time today. Just remind everybody how they can find out more about the Maine Council of Churches. Thank you. Um, so our website is maincouncilofchurches.org. <laughs> so it's easy to find us there. And Facebook, you can find us just by looking for Maine Council of Churches. Same goes for Instagram. Um, my email address is my first initial J and my last name Field, F-I-E-L-D, at maincouncilofchurches.org. And you can always 
shoot me an email if you have a question or our phone number is 772-1918. We try to be available in all those ways. And someday soon, let's hope we can be together in person again. And that's another way. And for folks at Hope Gateway, I worship with you guys. So you can also just buttonhole me during coffee hour if you want to. Um, I'll, uh, last Sunday, this just yesterday, I had to preach um, in Brunswick. So I wasn't able to be with you all. But most Sundays, you'll find me at worship uh, with you. So or, you can or a private you can message on the, on the chat box. Reverend Jane Field, Executive Director, Main Council of Churches. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arthur. I really appreciate it. To learn more about Hope Gateway in Portland, Maine, please visit www.hopegateway.com.